Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Dirt Radio. Organic. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnets. Activists. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilising a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. And good morning. Welcome to Dirt Radio. John's here with you and we're with Friends of the Earth, of course. And uh, well, it's Monday morning before, what is it? What's the thing that stops the nation? My goodness, it's, yep, the Melbourne Cup tomorrow. We've got Anthony Amos in the studio. Let me just give you a little bit of details about what we're going to be talking about. Foes just put a report together. What's happened is this has to do with pesticides in our waterways. And let me tell you, I had a look at this report and the number of toxic materials and difficult things that are in the water will make your hair turn white. Anthony's the researcher and campaigner with Foe, and he's the one that's written the report. I've asked him to come in to talk a little bit about it. Good morning, Anthony. Good day, John. How are you this morning? Yeah, not too bad. Good. Let me just start by asking a question about why you decided to put this report together at this time. Uh, I'd, I'd been sitting on a heap of data for, 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 for some time, so I'm worried about what was potentially coming down uh, our rivers and creeks that that people were using for drinking water. So um, I've been researching the issue for a long time and had all this data sitting there. So I just thought I'd, um, I'd collate it into one, one big report because there was uh, no information or very limited information out there in the, in the public sphere ab- about, about this topic. So I focused on, on pesticides. Um, and I should say... Um, that there's a whole host of other nasties that can be recorded, you know, reported in water, such as heavy metals. And the, the other big one at the moment is pharmaceuticals. So um, any, any, all the medications that, 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 that people consume, they go to the toilet, and that's all released into sewage, and um, eventually that all uh, releases back into waterways too. But I didn't focus on the pharmaceuticals. That might come next, but no, th- this one was about... Uh, pesticides, uh, specifically agricultural products. So the, these pesticides that you're talking about, these would be things that would be either sprayed on crops or potentially in our gardens? That's right, yeah. yeah. Home users, you know, you can, you, you can go down to Bunnings or somewhere and, and, and you'll see um, you know, a heap of products there that, that can be used. What people don't understand is that they might apply them in their garden or farm for that matter, but they, you know, then, then, then it rains. So, so what happens to these substances if, if, if they actually go off-site and, and end up in waterways? And some of these products are extremely mobile, so what that means is that, uh, you know, when they're sprayed, particularly on ground, that, that, that um, you know, is bare, uh, like, for what, you know, in, in a farm situation, w- w- one big dump of rain can uh, wash a fair lot of this off. And, um, yeah, and 
so the report's basically looking at, at it uh, from a national uh, pers- perspective. Um, yeah. And uh, so you've looked looked all right around the country, looking at the waterways. And where did you get the? Let, let, this is a technical question, but where did you get the data from? Uh, a lot of it was from um, from published reports. So, so there are scientists out there that are actually doing the measurements and 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 actually doing samples in various waterways across the country. Um, th- their work has increased in the last in the last decade. Um, pre- previous to that, there was very little work done in Australia. And what got me started on this was about 15 years ago. I looked at, uh, I started to uh, do freedom of information requests to, to various water th- authorities ar- ar- around the state, and found that some of the water authorities were actually testing, and s- some were doing um, very lax testing. But you know, I've, I've got a heap, heap of information that way. And in relation to, I, I did have a look at the report, and uh, look, I got to say that it, it is fairly technical, but what would you say to someone like myself who's looking at this report? What sort of things should we be looking at specifically if there were a couple of things that we had to take away from your report that were really important? Uh, well, the, the main reason I wrote the report was in terms of drinking water. Um, are there chemicals that are, are they entering uh, our drinking water supplies? If they are, at, at what levels? And then the next question was, are there, uh, are there sort of guidelines that are, are written which specify that, uh, you know, safe or dangerous are levels of these pesticides? So the Australian Drinking Water Guidelines, they're produced by the National Health and Medical Research Council. They've got extensive uh, uh, chemical fact sheets um, and they list uh, uh, it's about 150 or more pesticides in in their document and that's basically sent out to all water authorities scientists or, or whatever and and that specifies what chemicals are in water and, and what they regard as guidelines um, but what I found by doing this report is that 40 percent of of pesticides that uh, are commonly found in waterways uh, have no guideline under the Australian drinking water guidelines and um, the other disturbing thing was there are guidelines for uh, chemicals in the in the Australian drinking water guidelines that have never been detected. So it, it was quite clear to me that, 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 that the body in charge of setting these guidelines across the country really had not much idea about what was actually in the water um, themselves. I was almost... Uh, I've said it before, but it's almost like uh, put a blindfold on, have have a dartboard with a fifteen hundred sort of different chemicals, and just throw darts, and then and and wherever the dart goes, you you develop a guideline for that particular <laughs> substance. So um yeah, that, so that was sixty percent sort of in in inaccurate in 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 uh, in determining what pesticides are coming down where. And then you've got a, another set of guidelines called the ANZAC guidelines, which are for, for, uh, for ecological sort of levels. What, what's regarded if a chemical, for instance, like atrazine hits a, hits a creek, what is regarded as, as the level which will impact on anything living in the creek? What we found in this report was uh, over 96% of pesticides that are registered for use in Australia don't have any ecological guidelines if they hit waterways. Now, what's going on? I mean... So that's um, going to basically affect 
all the wildlife, all the creatures, all the all the living things in the creeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So ninety six percent of 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 the agvet chemicals used in Australia do not have ecological guidelines. So I mean, some of these substances have been used for thirty, forty, you know, fifty years, but we still don't have any comprehension about uh, what they're actually doing if 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 they get into waterways. So I thought that that was a pretty damning st- a statistic. Or um, so. What the idea of the report was, was to uh, get all the data out and actually I'll send this up and I have sent it up to the NHMRC, to their experts and hopefully what we're going to see is, is, is some guidelines um, out there. Um, I H- did, HMRC, what's N- NHMRC. NH- it's the National Health and Medical Research oh, of course. Council. Yes, yes. Um, and in terms of what people can do, look, the main uh, substance that we found in waterways across Australia is a herbicide called atrazine. But it has a very close relative called simazine, which is um, uh, been that's the second most commonly detected uh, pesticide in waterways. Simazine is the most frequently detected uh, pesticide around Melbourne in, in the waterways around Melbourne. It's used um, on. It's allowed to be used on on uh, driveways and paths. So so people spray this to get rid of their weeds rains or, or someone hoses down there the driveway um, uh, and that washes into stormwater and ends up in, 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 in the creeks that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, avoid simazine at all costs. Um, in a Melbourne area, you, you, you're not allowed to use atrazine. Um, it's, you've got to have an uh, agricultural chemical user's permit to use atrazine, but anyone, any, anyone can use simazine. So. And w- this simazine is, is something you could buy in, a, say, Bunnings and places like that's that? That's right, yeah. yeah it's, um, it's sort of, there's, a, there's a couple of names. I think one's called Pathweeder and stuff like that. And, and, and to put this stuff, th- th- I mean, this stuff is, is, is lethal um, at 0.1 part per billion. So all you need is one-tenth of a drop in an Olympic-sized swimming pool full of water to cause uh, problems to the um, to the receiving waters if this stuff ends up in the water. So uh, yeah, atrazine and simazine are, 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 are the two are the two are big ones. But uh, there was 186 that uh, that we found that had been detected in waterways across Australia. But those two are the um, the real culprits. Yeah, and for home users, uh, particularly in Melbourne, it's simazine that you really want to avoid. Uh, another thing about simazine, it's registered for use in swimming pools. So uh, that's a bit of a concern because if you're looking at one up to 0.1 right. part per billion is enough to whack um, you know, the endocrine systems of amphibians and animals, what's it doing to humans? And Anthony, you're also doing uh, your report. You've sent it out, and you've got something. You're you want people to go online and send a letter, or is a petition going to Josh Frydenberg, the Minister of Resources, the Minister of Environment? Yeah, yeah. We're asking uh, Mr. Friedman. We're just saying, where are the new ANZAC guidelines? You know, where are the ecological guidelines that they haven't been updated for since 2000? So the data that we're using at the moment is 20 years old. And like I said before, ninety-six percent of what's you know what's being used out there, there's no guideline for at all. Tell us the name of the report and where we can go to find it. Uh, you can go to the Friends of the Earth Australia website, and you click on the water uh, campaign, and then about halfway down the water page, you'll you'll come across the report. It's called Pesticides in Australian Waterways: An Overview. 
Great. And uh, not great, but uh, we want some action on it. And uh, I want to thank Anthony Amos for coming into Dirt Radio today. The report, to give us the name of the report again, Anthony. Uh, pesticides in Australian Waterways and Overview. And don't buy that stuff to clear your clear your driveway of the weeds. What's it called? Simazine. Any, Simazine. Anything with an active ingredient with Simazine in the, in, in the um, you know, it, it'll be written in small print somewhere on the, on the, on the label, but uh, yeah, avoid it. Thanks very much for coming in. That's Anthony Amos. He's a campaigner and researcher at Friends of the Earth, specializing in the area of waterways and also, by the way, forests as well. And he's doing some great work. Thanks again, Anthony. Thank you. CR has all kinds of music programs for you to hear. From blues to hip-hop, reggae, classical, punk, jazz, soul, indigenous, experimental, indie, metal and other music styles. Check out 3cr.org.au on the World Wide Web for more info. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. We're back, and uh, it's Dirt Radio. John's here with you. The Adani Mine in Queensland is back on the table and uh, there's been a lot of court cases there's been a lot of issues that have been raised around it Kristen Lyons is a associate professor in environment and sociology at the University of Queensland and she's been tracking the Adani Carmichael mine for some considerable time good morning Kristen Good morning, John. How are you? Good. I wanted to ask you to start with that there has been a new, um, I guess, a new stipulation about putting the mine into fast forward, putting it into the fast lane to get it going. Tell us a little bit about this. This is a very recent development. Yes, it is. It is. So over the last couple of years, really, we've seen both the Queensland state government and the federal government seeking to enable big coal in this country in a number of ways, whether that be whittling down environmental laws, whittling down environmental and social impact assessment processes. I mean, these are the kinds of legal and procedural frameworks that we have to ensure that new developments in this country country are commensurate with our vision for what a socially just and environmentally sustainable future should look like. So as you rightly say, the latest move we've seen is a recent decision by the Queensland government, our Labor government here in Queensland, um, to essentially, uh, well, what's happened is the Coordinator General has declared the Adani mine, which of course we know um, would be one of the largest coal mines on the planet, and has a you know a, a carbon footprint that that you know puts it put, would put the Galilee Basin in in something like one of the top ten 
um, greenhouse gas polluting countries on the planet. So the scale of greenhouse gas emissions from this mine are profound, and we have to put that in context. But what we've seen happen is the coordinator general in the state of Queensland saying, this is critical infrastructure. This Adani mine and related infrastructure is critical. And on that basis, as you say, fast-tracking the processes by which approval needs to take place. So essentially, this mine is being put on par with things like hospitals, schools and mm. vital infrastructure that we might see, say, in a time of flood or, or some other mm. kind of extreme event. So it's a really phenomenal expediting process that's gone on, which is just another you know, powerful indication of the way in which this state government and our federal government is seeking to roll out the Adani Carmichael mine. Now, the the mine has gone through a number of court cases and uh, they have been defeated. There's there's been a number of times that uh, people have tried to confront the the development. You say, and I'm taking this from an article, by the way, um, I'm using an article that you wrote in the conversation as the basis of our interview, and I think we'll put that on our definitely put that on our website so people can read it. But you say there's a very it's very interesting that even though the court cases have been lost, a number of useful things have come out of those court cases. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, there have been a number of court cases because there have been strong communities and driven significantly from local regional community groups like the Mackay Conservation Council, which, of course, are on the front line of being directly affected by port infrastructure associated with exporting of coal from the Galilee Basin. So the Mackay Conservation Council is but one group who have been involved in seeking to appeal court decisions at both the state and the federal level. Now, while, as you say, they've generally fallen in favour of Adani, what they have enabled to happen is for experts through a legal process to to stand on on trial and document um, the profound level of impact, social, economic and environmental associated with this mine, And what these processes have really powerfully demonstrated is some of the key claims that Adani have made are not actually matching up with experts in the field and what they say. So, for example, one specific example is that we've seen Adani and and similarly the state government here in Queensland frequently champion that over 10,000 or something like 10,000 jobs will be created through the Adani Carmichael mine. And yet what um, expert witnesses and an analysis of employment options throughout the life of the mine reveal is that that figure would be closer to 1,436 jobs or thereabouts. So we see this almost tenfold inflation of employment figures from the company compared to what other expert analysis reveals. And what's really concerning, and particularly in the last week, as we've seen um, uh, a big attack on environmental groups roll out through the Australian and and other media, is this constant reference to this 10,000 jobs figure. And yet what the court case has revealed is that 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 actually um, doesn't match up with with a lot of other analysis. So that's just one example. Um, Another that, again, economic analysis revealed is that um, the claim Adani made that they would pay something in the order of $22 billion in tax related to the mine, that that figure is closer to $3.8 billion. So, again, this phenomenal Mm. overinflation of both jobs and economic Mm. returns that would be realised from the mine 
um, compared to what other experts in the in the arena of this field talk about. And then, of course, there's the profound environmental impacts related to groundwater depletion of groundwater supplies, pollution of groundwater, and um, things like impacts on climate change, which these court case processes have been vital in shining a light on. Because we know that, um, and particularly in Queensland, we, we live with a legacy of um, you know, the previous LNP government that really whittled away the environmental and social impact assessment process, which constrained um, you know, thorough, rigorous assessment of the impacts of these kinds of large-scale projects. So these legal processes are, are really important parts of the democratic process so that we can get access to full information on what the full scale of impacts are from, you know, such a mega mine as the Adani mine. The other thing that was very interesting in your article is you're addressing Indigenous communities. And you've you've argued, you've suggested that this is really uh, – uh, this develop this mine is actually uh, an impingement on human rights and it's an impingement on indigenous rights. And interestingly, you've said that the indigenous uh, protest, the indigenous opposition to this mine has been really something which the media has not picked up on at all. Yeah, yeah. So the Wangan and Jagalingu Traditional Owners Council have uh, uh, the local um, community... uh, you know, with direct connection to the land on which the Adani mine is proposed. The Wangan and Jagalingu Traditional Owners Council have three times said no to a deal with Adani. We have a really clear statement um, from leaders within the W&J Traditional Owners Council that they do not want to and under no terms will do a deal with Adani. Um, And so there's a number of legal cases currently rolling out um, related to that. Now, what was really important is in recent weeks, we um, we had a visit in Australia from the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders, related to human rights defenders. And he met with a range of different people working in the arena of human rights. And, and at the completion of his visit to Australia, one of the really powerful comments that he made is that Indigenous Australians, including those fighting to, to defend their right to say no to large-scale extractive industries on their lands, face um, phenomenal challenges, face particular pressures from the mining industries and particular disadvantages that makes it very difficult to assert their human rights in this regard. But what we do know is that around the world there is recognition of of Indigenous rights and Indigenous rights to say no, including to projects like this. So we have this disconnect from what we know to be right internationally mm. with what is actually happening here in Australia. And and as you say, I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a perplexing situation that we don't see more public debate in Australia with with what is playing out here, which, you know, is a key um, human indigenous in, indigenous rights movement, particularly around land rights in Australia, which, you know, will likely have profound implications for the rest of the world as well. And, and the world is watching this case. Yes. And it's interesting to note that... Um, you know, certainly mainstream Australian media over the last week or so hasn't hasn't been focused so much 
on um, the interest of Indigenous rights, but has been particularly mm. interested um, in environmental groups, which um, have, you know, and you know, have historically in this country played a really important role in terms of shoring up our dem- democratic processes and making sure that diverse rights and interests are included in decision making, which has a, you know, a vital role in all of our well-being into the future. I think we're all very perplexed by uh, by the. Um by these sorts of developments. I think we're, some of us are tearing our hair out, but look, yeah. we can't do that at this point. I, I know this is a difficult question. And I just wanted to finally ask you, uh, I know it's very hard to do any kind of projection into the future, but where do you, where do you think, I'm going to ask in any way, where do you think in a, in a year's time this thing will be going? Uh, is, is there any, any possibility of, of, well, what do you think is going to happen? Mm, yeah, well... You know, it's interesting times. We're about to roll into the next um, United Nations International Climate Negotiations. We know that at the end of last year, Australia agreed to join the 2015 Paris Agreement, which commits us to a maximum of two-degree temperature rise, but ideally we aim for a 1.5-degree mm. temperature rise. And we know that Many Indigenous communities, Pacific Island nations are saying 1.5, we absolutely have to push for that. And so we have the president of Kiribati saying no new coal. We have, you know, we cannot roll out new coal mines and expect that we're going to reach these internationally agreed goals for trying to stabilise the Earth's atmosphere and, and achieve some kind of livable planet. So where are we going to be in a year's time? Well, if we actually realistically are going to stay committed to the Paris Agreement, which has now been ratified and Australia hasn't yet signed up, but um, given that we agreed to it at the end of last year, we can anticipate that we, that we will sign up in the coming months. And as such, if we are to do that, then the argument of no new coal, particularly in a country like Australia, we, we really, you know, Ideally, that's where we move to, and I think that's the only viable option that we have if we are going to achieve our commitment to stay on track to the Paris Agreement, which in itself, I mean, I think we have to put that in context. Even if we achieve the Paris Agreement, life is still going to be really hard on this planet for a lot of people, and so that we wouldn't aim to do our best to meet that agreement is... is, it's morally unjustifiable. We absolutely must do everything we can, and um, that seems to be fairly obviously keeping the majority of fossil fuels in the ground right now. And in so doing, respecting Indigenous human rights, including the right to say no to violent extractivist development that, that disrupts people's life and livelihoods. And, and, and in fact, many the, the way in which the Wanganajagalingu people talk, as I understand, is that it would sever connections to land and destroy life um, by destroying the very ecological basis on which people are connected to the earth there. So um, let us hope, you know, we have yes. the kind of sage leadership we need to go in that direction. Yes. There's certainly an international mandate to do so. Kirsten Lyons, thank you very much for being on Dirt Radio this morning and uh, keep up your good work. Thank you for your insights. Keep up the, uh, keep up the struggle up there in Queensland. Thanks, John. Thanks for taking the time to talk about this issue. Much appreciated. And I was talking there with Kristen Lyons, and she is an associate professor in environment and sociology at the University of Queensland. We'll put her conversation piece on the Dirt Radio website. And that's it for us today.
And uh, we will be back as usual next week. Speak to you then.